Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Cage Kimladoon. Today we take you to the University of New England, where radical feminist Judith Castleberry discusses church women within the Black Pentecostal Church and her experiences. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing our speaker today is Vice President of Global Affairs, Anwar Majid. It's my absolute great pleasure to introduce Judith Castleberry, who is an Associate Professor of African Studies at Bowdoin College, teaching courses on African-American women's religion, religious lives, music and spirituality in popular culture, music and social movements, and issues in black intellectual thought. The only regret I have is she's not playing music tonight. She's a very accomplished musician. So her interest in African-American religious and cultural studies with particular attention to gender guides her research agenda. She's the author of The Labor of Faith, Gender, and Power in Black Apostolic Pentecostalism, which employs feminist labor theories to examine the spiritual, material, social, and organized work of women in a New York-based Pentecostal denomination. This book was published by Duke University Press in 2017. By the way, she, in this book, she unveils a world with its emotional, intimate, and aesthetic forms of labor, which is absolutely incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and so, and it's a world basically that's practically unknown to most of us, I think. She's co-editor with Elizabeth Pritchard of Spirit on the Move, Black Women and Pentecostalism in Africa and the Diaspora, also published by Duke University Press in 2019. She's currently working on a biography of cultural icon Grace Jones, titled Solving the Mystery of Grace Jones. It's the, uh, it's the Holy Ghost. Castleberry's interest in links between lettered and performed scholarship comes from her career as an academic and performer. As a vocalist and guitarist, and guitarist, she currently performs internationally with Toshi, is it Reagan or Reagan? Reagan. Reagan. And, and Big Lovely. So without further ado, please help me welcome Judith Castleberry to the podium. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anwar. And thank you for your kind invitation. It's really a pleasure and a thrill to be here. Having survived the blizzard, we're all good. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, Lucille, who uh, is the queen of logistics. And just a delight to work with. So I'd like to open with a poem by Lucille Clifton. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come, celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. With this poem, wait, let me make sure I got this right. There we go. With this poem, Lucille Clifton asked us to come celebrate the life she had formed, 
the miracle of self-making, shaping a kind of life with no model. Black feminists bathed in the comfort and joy of Clifton's words. She named our labor and reward. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, confronting death and surviving. We saw ourselves and each other. We stood with her on the bridge between starshine and clay, between the boundlessness and brilliance of our potential and the realities of our materiality. We gave witness to each other's shaping and testified about our own self-making against all odds. Yet I wonder, how do we as black feminists think about all the different kinds of lives that black women have made and make? Can we, with our progressive perspectives, make room for celebrating black women who have shaped religiously conservative lives? Women who reproduce and sustain what I call women-driven patriarchies. Should we celebrate the kind of life they have made? Here I'd like to pay particular attention to the shaping of a kind of life. What work do women have to do in the shaping process to shape to mold, to stretch, to pull, to shrink, to contract, to expand, to shape. This takes work. This is labor. Viewing religiously conservative women's lives, church practices through the lens of labor, in particular their emotional, intimate, and aesthetic labor in both material and immaterial realms, opened a way for me to think about the skills, training, dedication, and love reproduced as they carry out physical and spiritual work to develop and sustain their own holy personhood and sacred communities. Theories of emotional, intimate, and aesthetic labor come out of workplace management and labor studies. Each theory developed to better understand new requirements on workers as global economies shifted and created higher demands for service work. Emotional labor identifies the work entailed in managing one's own, one owns, one's own emotions and the emotions of others in effective communications and in achieving desired outcomes. Originally, this theory was applied to the airline industry, particularly with flight attendants, and thinking about the requirements for work that were not actually spelled out, but were actually very much uh, required for them to do their job effectively. So how did they have to, what was their demeanor? How did they have to smile? What kind of uh, posture did they have to maintain in order to keep the clientele happy? And then intimate labor requires one to ascertain bodily knowledge of another and apply that knowledge to achieve desired outcomes. So we can think about uh, home health care workers, midwives, or my wonderful massage therapist. And then aesthetic labor can be thought about broadly as the labor of presentation, presenting fundamental communal or workplace values of beauty. Um, we see it materially as in dress and comportment, so how one carries or is required to carry themselves and present themselves on the job. As well, we can think about, and we'll see an example of this a little later on, we can think about how um, the work involved in creating, reproducing, and sustaining aesthetic values in immaterial ways, uh, for example, through sound. So for the purposes of tonight's lecture, I'm highlighting the confluence of emotional, intimate, and aesthetic labor by church women 
as they carry out care work, the work of healing, health, and wholeness for themselves and their community. The black Pentecostal women who opened up their world to me belong to the Church of Our Lord Jesus Christ of the Apostolic Faith Incorporated, also known as COOLJC, and as they call themselves, the Cool JC. Apostolic Pentecostalism is a spirit-centered religion, meaning members recognize spirit baptism, that's the physical infilling of the Holy Spirit as evidence of conversion or full belonging. They actually don't use the term conversion. The physical presence of the Holy Spirit can manifest as divine gifts, such as speaking in tongues, a holy language, the ability to have visions, to prophesy the future, um, to heal or be healed divinely. And while one may receive any of these divine gifts, uttering the holy language or speaking in tongues is the marker of spirit baptism for the members of the Cool JC. Once the spirit is inside, Adherents need no intermediary to access God. The Bible is recognized as the ultimate authority and members are held to strict standards regarding leisure activities and social and sexual behavior. Dress is also highly regulated and codified most rigorously on women's bodies. Dress code for women prohibits sleeveless tops, pants, hemlines at or below the knee, open-toed shoes, bare legs, meaning without stockings or tights, makeup, earrings, and uncovered heads. Cool JC is an 85% female-majority, male-headed denomination founded in Harlem, New York in 1919. It has a history of progressive black-centered racial politics forged in the flames of Jim Crow-era violence. The founders... Robert and Carrie Lawson traveled from Ohio to New York City during what became known as the Bloody Red Summer of 1919 because of the bloody massacres of black citizens in white-led race riots throughout the country. Once in Harlem, the Lawsons fought against racial discrimination and promoted uh, black economic and educational advancement. Robert Lawson published theological treatises such as his 1925 piece, The Anthropology of Jesus, Our Kinsman, dedicated to the glory of God and to the help of solving the race problem. For Lawson, racial violence, discrimination, and segregation were moral issues at odds with Christian doctrine. He argued, quote, Our brethren of the white race are laboring under a handicap. Their spiritual condition is deplorable. To see them laboring under two ideals, one racial and the other spiritual, trying to adjust themselves according to two different principles, makes them cowards in one sense and hypocritical in the other, unquote. While Lawson, as head of the church, promoted a progressive racial agenda, he held very conservative views on the roles of women, grounded in his theological interpretations of female submission and obedience to male authority at home and in the church. Along with regulations on dress and comportment, he prohibited women's ordination. Thus, avenues to official church leadership were closed to them. So needless to say, from the outset of working with the women at Cool JC, I did not, I did not find it necessary 
to find traces of black feminist perspectives to recognize their strategies and practices of care. In fact, women's critical role in producing, reproducing, and advancing a a women-driven patriarchy is antithetical to black feminism. Understandably, anybody looking for black feminist networks of care would not go to this church to find it. What I found nonetheless were women who expound profound levels of energy and resources to produce, develop, and maintain their holy sense of self and community. These investments manifest in both formal and informal women-centered networks and rituals that sustain the church. As such, the strategies of Cool JC Women do provide important lessons and cautions in creating and maintaining networks and rituals of care. I'd like to introduce you to two specific women-centered rituals in bodily death and in spiritual birth to illustrate my points about care, healing, and wholeness while bringing those practices into conversation with a few black feminist thinkers. In what follows, you'll hear me refer to church women as mother and sister. All church women are referred to as sister. But once a woman has, has um, shown years of commitment and spiritual leadership, she will be elevated to the role of mother. And then as well, members who um, have received spirit baptism, they all refer to each other as saints. And so when you hear me say saints, that's how they refer to each other. Death, sleeping. 9.30 a.m., my cell phone rang. It was Sister Holmes. Hi, I'm on my way to Louise's house. She paused. You know why, she said softly. She went to sleep this morning. I jumped up. I'm on my way, I told her. Louise Franklin had passed away, 46 years young, a brain tumor, cancer, Six months earlier, in June, she began having severe headaches that prompted a series of diagnostic exams. In August, x-rays revealed a growth in her brain about the size of a quarter. By October, it had grown to the size of a small grapefruit. In mid-November, she entered the hospital, but before surgery, she slipped into a coma and never recovered. A divorced single mother she left two teenage children. I arrived at Louise's house around 10.30 a.m. on that cold December morning. Mother Morris, broom in hand, answered the door. Praise the Lord, she greeted me in the way of the saints. We hugged. Then she continued sweeping the carpeted hallway. At the end of the long hallway beyond the front door, Mother Reeves cleaned the bathroom with a deep concentration to detail that can come with grief, as if the repeated motion of the sponge on the sink could eventually wipe away the sorrow. I went in, touched her back, she turned, and we embraced. In the kitchen, Sister Farmer sat at the table mechanically eating scrambled eggs and home fries from a small styrofoam takeout box. We hugged. Praise him, we said simultaneously. Her eyes filled with tears as she shook her head. Sister Charles came in from the dining room where she too had been cleaning. Praise him, Sister Judith. We hugged. 
How are you, she asked. I'm okay, how about you? Her lips tightened across her teeth and she gave a slight shrug, kind of like, what can I say? What needs to be done, I asked. Well, Mother Morris said, entering the kitchen, the stair and hallway carpets need to be finished. I didn't know if she was tired of sweeping or just wanted to be in the kitchen with the other saints. I think the latter. I picked up where she had left off in the hallway, then moved on to sweep the stairs. Black lesbian feminist writer and former New York State poet laureate Audre Lorde tells us, quote, pain is important. How we evade it, how we succumb to it, how we deal with it, how we transcend it. She tells us that when we experience profound pain, we have, quote, a choice to die or to bear the pain. And what does bearing mean? It means changing or going through. So the pain is transformed. The intensity changes. It has to stop or it has to change, unquote. The emotional, physical, and spiritual labor that Cool JC women carried out when Louise went to sleep was care work. Care work to help transform the pain. Care work to prepare the death spaces. Care work to prepare themselves and the stunned and mourning community for the hours, days, weeks, and months ahead. The morning that Louise passed away, numerous phone calls to the women of the church dispatched saints to begin the series of tasks that come with a death. One saint later explained to me, The moment you find out that somebody passes, everything in your organized real life stops to go meet the need of that person. So literally, you can get that call at one o'clock in the morning. Everybody's going to be out the house at 145, gotten up out of their beds and come to the aid of that family. Well, this certainly was the case with Louise's passing. A flood of questions had to be answered. Who will make arrangements with the funeral home? Do we need to shop for clothes to lay her to rest in? Who will gather information from family and friends for the obituary? The order of the homegoing service needs to be planned. Check with the church. Set a date. Who will, who will prepare the repast meal, the grocery shopping, the cooking? And the house needs to be readied to receive family and friends. Louise's house was a mess. Her children, understandably, had given it no attention for quite some time. The saints had been coming regularly since Louise had taken ill to help with meals and cleaning. But now it was different. Divine healing is a central tenet of the church. And since Louise's initial diagnosis, congregational and individual prayers had been focused on her healing. And God answers prayer. No one expected her to die. So the meals, the cleaning, the laundry, all that work, caring for the family up until now had been stopgap measures awaiting her return. Now, the cleaning had to be deep, not only to receive the many folks who would be coming through in the days to come, but also in a manner befitting how much the house meant to Louise. She was so proud of her two-story, four-bedroom Brooklyn home. She had bought it on her own and had done quite a bit of the renovation work herself. She got that house and fixed it up like she was a he-man, one of the church mothers remembered. 
Saints now putting a sparkle and shine on Louise's house served as a testimony to the love and care work she was known for. Louise often hosted gatherings, especially summer barbecues. On those days, the kitchen would be abuzz with women from the church preparing volumes of food with two fans running at top speed, vainly attempting to alleviate the heat of bodies, the oven, burners on the stove, and steaming pots. In the backyard, a large canopy would house folding banquet tables that held plasticware, condiments, and restaurant-sized aluminum trays full of all manner of delectable hot and cold dishes. Next to them, a large barbecue grill would be crowded with hamburgers, hot dogs, and chicken. Folks sat in folding chairs and at tables, cross-talking, laughing, and playing cards. And young men and boys would shoot hoops and talk much mess at the end of the yard. On the frigid December morning of Louise's passing, the laughter... The aromas from those summer days seemed long gone. Smells of Clorox, Pledge, Ajax, and dust mingled in the air as the saints prepared the house for grieving family and loved ones. Armed with ammonia and bleach, Mother Reeves left the bathroom and came into the kitchen to begin the process of cleaning every utensil, dish, and surface. Amid the sounds of cleaning and thick silence of grief from the kitchen, a rich alto tenor register, she began singing a slow, plaintive hymn. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I just want to thank you, Lord. Having spent most of her 62 years in church, Mother Reeves had been singing to the glory of God for a long time. Her song began softly, internally, and with each repetition, the song swelled in volume and intensity, pulling, stretching each word Her resonant overtones cradled each syllable. Her gospel vibrato carried sadness, and her vocal mastery relayed conviction. In this moment, Mother Reeves took up another level of care beyond the task-oriented cleaning of the space. She was working to transform the space, to change the intensity of the pain, to sound it out of her body. She was working to shore up religious confidence by saying, thank you, Lord, and to soothe the hurt of the women gathered, herself included. Louise's death flew in the face of the saints' experiences and church teachings of divine healing and answered prayer. So in these initial hours, before the family and wider church community gathered, these good women came together to carry out the long tradition of women-centered death rituals of care, to transform the pain of death and work toward wholeness. Writer, activist, and doula, Adrienne Marie Brown tells us, quote, existence is fractal. The health of the cell is the health of the species and the planet, unquote. How well these women, the cells of the church, 
manage, and transform pain will determine how well the entire church body manages and transforms pain. The significance of women in black church communities and the long legacy of healing, service, and devotion in black spiritual and religious practices is no coincidence. Black feminists, artists, activists, and scholars across mediums and disciplines fold healing, service, and devotion into their practices as well. Healing becomes both a vision of and right to physical, spiritual, and mental health for humanity and the planet. Service is required to make the vision a reality. Devotion to an ethos of divine sacred wholeness undergirds the commitment to healing and service. Here we enter a terrain where the ethos of conservative black church women and black feminists resonate with each other because of shared histories of social degradation and economic and political exclusion. The women of Cool JC are fully cognizant of black women's experiences through the eras of slavery, Jim Crow, civil rights, Trumpism, and beyond. At the heart of their responses, however, they put their personal relationship with God, Jesus, first. In the novel, The Salt Eaters, Tony, Tony Cade Bambara asks, Are you sure, sweetheart, that you want to be well? Just so you're sure, sweetheart, and ready to be healed, because wholeness is no trifling matter. To reframe my opening questions about shaping lives, how do we as black feminists think about the different ways black women view healing and wholeness? Can we, with our progressive perspectives, make room for religiously conservative black women's perspectives on healing and wholeness? The care that Cool JC women take in preparing death spaces, the space of bodily sleep and spiritual transition, can be understood in light of their labor as gatekeepers to spiritual birth. Full transition into the church community requires being born of the water, that's full immersion, baptism in the name of Jesus, and being born of the spirit, speaking in tongues as the spirit of God gave utterance. Except on rare occasions, water baptism precedes spirit baptism. Choosing to go down in the liquid grave symbolically ends the old way of life and begins a new life in which one, having repented of her sins, took Jesus Christ as her personal savior, accepting the redemption and the crucifixion and the resurrection's promise of eternal life. After going down in the water, the newly baptized begin tarrying for the Holy Ghost. Tarrying is the transitional practice of intense, focused prayer that leads to spirit infilling, a spirit baptism. Some begin tarrying immediately after water baptism. Others hold off for days, weeks, months, and sometimes years, depending on their readiness to fully commit to apostolic Pentecostalism. And the church offered members numerous opportunities to seek spirit baptism in prayer services throughout the week, and importantly, during altar call that ends Sunday worship services, to which we'll now turn. Wholeness begins with baptism in the spirit. In black American Pentecostalism, spiritual birth 
like bodily death, is women's domain. Birth, awakening, Sunday morning altar call. If you need prayer, come. If you want to stand in the gap for someone, come. If you want to be filled with the precious gift of the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance, come. As he closes his sermon, Bishop Cook invites congregants to the altar. Mother England and Sister Holmes, both recognized altar workers, move from their seats in the third pew and position themselves at the first pew, standing on either side of the center aisle. They create a gateway for the ministers who've come down from the dais to the floor to pray for those in need. Supplicants form a prayer line down the center aisle. As congregants reach the gateway to the altar, Mother England and Sister Holmes direct them each to one of the ministers for prayer. With prayer, some congregants come under the anointing, contracting, bending, jerking, running in place, shouting the holy dance, crying out and speaking in tongues. Others move forward to the curtain railing, separating the raised pulpit area from the altar where they remain deep in prayer. Some tarry, spending concentrated time praying specifically for baptism by the Holy Ghost. After Minister Clark prays for Veronica, she stays at the altar, joining about 20 other worshipers. She prays, crying with arms outstretched and palms up. A social work graduate student who's new to the church, she's regularly answered preacher's call to come for prayer. The last in line has received prayer and Sister Holmes moves from her position at the gateway to Veronica and stands just off her left shoulder at a diagonal. She plants her feet about a foot from Veronica and leans her upper body forward, speaking into Veronica's left ear, never touching. The proximity of Sister Holmes's body comes as close as one can without making contact. She rocks slightly in and out so that her body and voice create physical and sonic waves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Call his name. He knows your heart. Hallelujah. Tears and perspiration stream down Sister Holmes' face as she urges and prays. After about 15 minutes, Veronica's intensity diminishes and she emerges from her prayerful state. They embrace. Veronica returns to her seat. Sister Holmes wipes her face and neck with a paper towel while moving to another supplicant. An altar worker like Sister Holmes performs a kind of dance, winding in and out of praying and anointed congregants, impelling each to go deeper and praise him. She knows how long to stay and when to shift to another soul. When a soul comes under the anointing, the woman must stay just close enough, moving in the rhythm of the embodied spirit. To be an altar worker, According to Mother Grayson, 
You must have a love for the people, a love for souls, and a desire to see souls saved. Because working around the altar, that's really a labor of love. Altar workers look to usher God himself into the seeker, connecting the innermost recesses of the seeker, her soul, to God as the indwelling Holy Ghost. In order for seekers to be filled with the power of Jesus, Mother Grayson explained, they need somebody to help pray them through. And if nobody takes time to work with them, they're never going to come through. You can't rush because you're praying for a soul. But as Mother Grayson pointed out, it takes more than love and patience Altar workers, she said, must have know-how to know what they're doing, to know about praying. You're there to encourage that person, you know, and here her, her tone became really soft and blanket-like. Press your way. I know you can do it. Say Jesus. So know-how, as she described it, is just that, knowing what to say and how to say it. She then went on to explain how altar workers must be attuned to the dynamics of tarrying. Once they get to a certain point, she said, you have to know when to stop telling them to say Jesus and encourage them to just start praising the Lord. You know, start praising. Say thank you, Jesus. It's different little words you say just to encourage because some of them get tired. They want to give up. You keep saying, press your way. He's almost there. You know, come on. Let him on in. It's different little phrases that you could use working with the souls. The intimacy of altar work depends upon networks of women who pass along practices through an apprenticeship model, cultivating new generations to take up the mantle of praying someone through. Mother Grayson learned from her grandmother and has since passed it on to two more generations of women. Mother England and Sister Holmes, who we met earlier, received training from established older altar workers as well. Mother England came up in the Harlem church under Mother Carrie Lawson. And Sister Holmes came of age as an altar worker in Brooklyn church under Mother England, her godmother. Sister Holmes compared altar worker to the midwife During the birthing process, she explained, it's preparing, pushing out, nurturing, soothing, comforting the mother who's about to give birth to a baby. The altar worker is responsible for that same experience for the person seeking. She further explained that it's the responsibility to, quote, work people out of the intensive contraction when they're thinking about their past lives. If they're worthy to move into this next phase of their spiritual life, if they're ready to release. She went on. Sometimes I think it's like an expectant mother who's never had a child, thinking, I'm no longer going to be this person without a baby. Now I'm going to have something else to take care of. They may wonder if they're worthy of this spirit that they're trying to get to come inside of them. Well, notably, some church women demonstrated an ambivalence around officially identifying their strategies as women-centered 
or voicing open support for their strategies and activities to be viewed as critical to the well-being of the church. Although women wield significant authority, their caring practices sometimes go unnoticed or unacknowledged by male leadership and other women, thereby curtailing the effects that such practices could have on women's collective political power in the church. The spiritual currency of modesty and humility presents a challenge when trying to ascertain the full range and importance of care and support networks and rituals. Sister Cleveland said, I don't want to say everything where God has placed me. I want the Lord to be edified, not self, because who am I? Another sister said, God says, don't let your right hand know what your, right hand, what your left hand is doing. And whatever you do secretly, he'll reward you openly. So whatever I do, I try to downplay it because it's not about me. So on the one hand, divine motivation to establish networks of care has the potential to remove ego and personality conflicts when extending a helping hand. On the other hand, commitment to a conservative male-headed religious organization, alongside the reality of needing to remain in the good graces of men in power, often means women police each other, each other's earthly behavior out of concern for another's and their own spiritual development. Women's majority status, their centrality to all church operations, and their desires to model religious values can lead to conflicting ideas about and motivations for how women implement, recognize, and are recognized for the critical practices of care to sustain the community. Now, the care work that I've described here happens outside of the auspices of the three formal women auxiliaries. There are three formal organizations for women, and the work that I've talked about happens outside of those auxiliaries. Every woman in the church belongs to one or more auxiliaries. And women created these formal and informal horizontal networks of operation, which cross-cut the vertical structures of male power. And this has been key to women's effectiveness in a male-headed hierarchy. By creating webs that cut across rather than ladders, church women have the ability to insert themselves into church polity from multiple entry points. Examining the nuances of church women's caring practices helped me to reflect on what we might learn from their organizing strategies and caring practices. Whether formal or informal, networks, specifically web networks and rituals, ground all of their care work. Now, I grapple with these questions about strategies and rituals for healing, health, and wholeness within the context of the academy, because that's where I spend most of my time. As black feminists in the academy, an academy which promotes an individualist ethos, how might we build care and support into the many facets of our lives across institutional and geographical boundaries? Black feminists working in predominantly white institutions are particularly challenged in forming networks and creating rituals for caring practices. What are the structures of power in the academy? How can we envision care networks within them? Or should we try to build these networks into academic institutional culture? Should they exist separately from our academic spaces or should we form web networks that operate both within and outside of the academy? 
How can we build networks to adequately address the need for healing, health, and wholeness? In addition to strategic organizing decisions, the women of Cool JC draw on generations of ritual practices to make strategic cultural decisions in carrying out their work. The efficacy of holy women's care rituals has been time-tested. Important questions arise in the, in the church context that can be applied to other contexts as we develop and implement practices of care into our various communities. What is the labor of care? What are effective rituals of intimacy? Who carries the burden of implementing care practices? And who takes care of caregivers? This research also helped me think about how we value or devalue the labor of religiously conservative women. For many black feminists, the church has not been a source of healing, but one of pain and exclusion. However, it might be time to rethink the value of holy women's organizing structures and ritual practices and care work. What's more, understanding the full extent and meaning of black holy women's caring labor can help progressive scholars and activists connect and work with a broader range of people, perhaps even people in our communities and families with whom we do not share religious and political ideology. These times call for new visions, new connections, and new coalitions. And then I'd like to, to end with a final thought. While I was working on this, I happened to, to have a conversation with one of my students that spoke directly to these issues. Hawa, her name, her pseudonym, is a brilliant, committed political activist who comes from a large Somali immigrant family based in the Midwest. She had just returned home from Maine and had for the first time attended a women's circle at the mosque with her mother. Hawa had never attended because this is a space reserved for older women. She described the ritual prayers and chanting that raise energy to the point where women cry, wail, and catch divine light. She said, seeing these women crying, breaking down that way and catching the Holy Ghost, I was so surprised. I always saw them as so strong and didn't see them as needing this type of psychic and emotional release. It was so powerful. I really need to think about how to connect my activism and these kinds of rituals of self and communal healing. Well, to that I say, let the church say, Ashe, Amen, and Amin. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. So if you have any questions, please raise your hand, and someone will give you a microphone to ask the question. Okay, we have a student right here. Um, in your book, you had talked about how wives are expected to be obedient to their husbands, even when they are being abused. In this day and age, would you be surprised to see a wave of protests from females to be disobedient towards their husbands and push against forces like they do in the workplace? Um, you know, that's, that's a great question. Thank you so much. That was a very, um, one, one person that I talk about in the book was a woman who had a very, was in a very abusive relationship, physically abusive relationship. It was horrible. And in fact, um, the church mothers told her, do not put up with that abuse. But one of the challenges, and, and she actually herself used 
uh, her own biblical interpretation to push back against her husband. So one thing that happened, her husband used to be in the church. He had been very active in the church and then he left the church and she continued going to the church, but he didn't want her to go to church because he wanted to control all her activities. And she kept saying, she would say this thing, God forgive me, but I'm going to church, right? God forgive me, I'm disobeying my husband, but I'm going to church. So there was a way that she was able to both, um, in a sense, recognize the, the sin of disobeying her husband, but she did what she wanted to do, right? And this is something that was, was the, the way to navigate those kind of, of constrictions, those kind of gender constraints. There are very creative ways that they navigate those. Now, one of the church mothers uh, actually told her um, that she needed to get out of there and one of, the, one of the older church mothers said something about hitting him in the head with a pan or something like that. But anyway, um, but, what, but what in the end what happened was um, one of the reasons that she stayed in the relationship is because of the ways that the church frowns on divorce. You're not, you're not allowed to get divorced, right? And you can only remarry if you do happen to part with ways with your partner. The only way you can remarry is if your spouse dies. So even if you divorce a person, you still cannot get remarried in the church. So one of the things that keeps women in marriages that can be really problematic is this prohibition on divorce. But the other thing that's going on oftentimes too is that women are, are really trying to get their husbands to come back into the fold, right? So now the second part of your question, I want to address that. You were saying to me about a movement. Can you say a little bit more about that? It's just a wave of protest from females to be disobedient towards their husbands Mm -hmm. and push against the forces like they do in the workplace, like you had mentioned in your book. Yes, yes, yes. They use different strategies, Right? They use different strategies in the workplace than they do in the church and at home because according to doctrine, obedience, women's obedience is to men at home and in the church. So when they move into the workplace, they're actually operating under a different set of, under a different value system. They do not have to be submissive or obedient to men at work. And they're, because for a number of reasons, they're not of the church and they're not in the religion. So they don't, they are very, these are, these are 21st, 20th and 21st century black New York women, right? So this is who they are. So they are, they have all kinds of, of occupations and positions from judge to college professors to entertainer to singers to, you know, like just a whole host of things that people are doing. So how they operate in the workspace is very different from how they operate at home. However, there is a a kind of a, how can I explain this? There's an overlap. There's a kind of a porous boundary, right? So, So on one hand, when women get a certain sense of themselves in the world, right? If you're, if you're um, vice president of a bank, which one of these women was vice president of a bank of Chase at Chase. And so she had a, she was a very brilliant and strong person. 
right? But she was also very much in the church. And there were ways that she would navigate how to kind of carry her power and exercise her power. And that's one of the things I'm saying about these, the different structures. Like when women, they, they set up these webs of, of working that go this way. And they actually established those before the male hierarchy was established. So they work this way. And so there are ways that they're able to really have a profound impact on church life and church relationships that become, that aren't quite as apparent as the, as the hierarchy. I hope that helps. Yeah. Thank you. We have another student question on your left here. Yes. Um, I really wanted to know if you expected a positive or negative reaction from the woman. Did they agree with you that they were overworked or did they not agree with what you thought? Did they agree with me that, that they were overworked? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they know they're overworked. They're tired all the time. They talk about it. And that's the other thing, you know, like, like they, when I was talking about formal recognition, the oral history, the oral narratives of women is much more radical, much more, uh, uh, yeah, much more radical than anything they would really say out in, in, a, in, in public or that they would write. But their conversations with each other are very, very, they know what's going on. They know what's going on. As a matter of fact, one, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure I use this example in, in the book, um, they had these big national um, conventions, uh, annual, and at one of them, the, uh, was one of the bishops from the organization was preaching, and he, was, and he started to talk about um, how a lot of other uh, Pentecostal churches, because Pentecostalism is a huge umbrella with a lot of different configurations underneath it. This is just one. And he was talking about how um, a lot of Pentecostal churches are, are kind of what they call taking down the standard, right? Like not, not, not holding the line. And he was saying, well, one thing, we're never going to let go of the standard. And he was talking about women being able to preach. And he was saying, women will never preach in this church because that's not God's way. And, and it's, of course, it's mostly women. And so women are saying, yes, amen, hallelujah. And one of the, one of the um, I was sitting next to one of the church mothers, she says, they can have it. We do enough. They need to do something. I was like, okay. So you, they know. Hi. Hi. Um, first off, I want to honor the intensity. The story about the woman dying. But what I want to talk about is... What was the phrase you used about women-focused patriarchal systems? Women-driven patriarchies. Yes, yes. I come from a church tradition that is as far away from this as it can be. I'm a Unitarian. Mm -hmm. And yet, I have discovered in the four or five congregations that I've been involved with that if the women aren't connected, it's a crappy church. It doesn't matter who preaches. It doesn't matter who's on the board. It doesn't matter if the women aren't connected. That's profound. Do you agree? 
That was my experience. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a wonderful book by uh, Cheryl Townsend Gilks, who teaches up at Colby, and it's called If It Wasn't for the Women, There Wouldn't Be a Church. And I, I've heard men say this in the church. If, in this church, they know that if it wasn't for, they would not have a church without the women. It just would not be there. Yeah, thank you. I think we have another student question here. Excuse me. I was curious as to um, what do you see for the future of women within the Pentecostal religion? Like, do you see more joining, more leaving, more acquiring positions of power? Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a great question. I went back. um, I went to the annual convention. uh, What was the summer before COVID? Like in the before times, the one right before COVID. I don't know what year that was. 2019. It feels like it was a century ago. Um, And they invited me back because it was the um, centennial. And yeah, 2019, it was the centennial of the church. And um, they invited me back because um, some of them had read the book. And they wanted me to come and give a presentation on the history of women in the church, in their church. And and then also there's there's a service... Um, called 5,000 Women in White. And it's literally that. 5,000 Women in White in a huge banquet hall. And they also wanted me to to give a welcome to the women and talk a little bit about what the work that I've done. And um, it was really, um, when I did the talk on the history, it was a smaller group. And so there was an opportunity for for me to talk with folks. And, And they love having something that actually translates what they know and what they've been doing. And so there are ways that um, when the, when the um, archbishop of this denomination, who was archbishop when I was doing this research, when he passed away, the archbishop who took his place is a, I'll say in terms of gender relationships, He's more open-minded. His wife is an incredibly powerful person in the organization. And, her, and incredibly, her, she's incredibly powerful spiritually. And so she really wields a great deal of power and influence from her position, right, as, as a powerful, spiritually powerful woman. But what I did notice at this last convention was there seemed to be a little bit more space that women were taking in terms of how they were speaking. So one of so the, the, the keynote speaker at the um, 5,000 Women in White, I was actually kind of surprised at how much I would consider um, almost radical gender politics that she was inserting. And she, and she was doing it in a way, but this is the thing. These are Bible people. So they, it's in the Bible, right? They're going to find it in the Bible. And that's kind of, I think, what's happening more now is all these, I mean, if, you th- if we think about the church from 1919, there have been changes over time, right? There was a big shift in, in gender dynamics between, around in, um, Around the 1940s, 30s and 40s, there was a little, sh- there was a shift in gender dynamics. And I can see where now another one is beginning to take place. I don't know how far it's going to go. 
I don't know. But yeah, thank you. Well, that, thank you so much thank for this you. wonderful presentation. And uh, you filled this room with the spirit, for sure. And uh, we'll carry it with us now. And uh, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks, You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk with Judith Castleberry. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.